study through the book of 1 Peter is steadfast hope in a foreign land. Steadfast hope in a foreign land. We have been learning about what the Christian's true place is in this world and how we ought to think about the things that are happening around us. The Word of God is relevant, and it teaches us how to interpret what we're seeing in the world today. We have been learning what it is that keeps Christians steadfast and secure in this life, even in the midst of difficulty. And we've been learning what is the great hope for every Christian, and that is the salvation and eternal life that we have only through the Lord Jesus Christ. If we are going to remain faithful to Christ, and if we are going to remain steadfast in our hope in the context of a sinful and increasingly hostile world, then we must keep our eyes on Jesus Christ, that we must remember the eternal hope that He has secured for us in heaven. This means that a Christian who is stable in this world, a Christian who remains faithful, is not going to be attached to this world, to the things of this world. It means that we will not be driven by the pleasures of this world, and we will not be motivated by the opinions of the people of this world. We may enjoy this world for what it is and what it has to offer, but that is not where our hope is, and that is not what we live for we must keep our eyes always on our Savior, Jesus Christ. We must look often into the Word of God so that we will learn who He is and what He is up to in the world. And we must strive to follow Him, to be holy in godly Christian character as we are taught by the Word. And this is something that we do not just on Sundays in gathered worship. This is something that is to characterize every aspect of our lives, every relationship, every situation, every responsibility. This is the thrust of what Peter has been teaching throughout this book of 1 Peter, so that God's people would be comforted and encouraged, even in the midst of their suffering for righteousness' sake, and so that we might be instructed and how to live here and now according to the steadfast hope that we have in Christ. And that brings us to our text for today, which is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. This is a text that lifts up the Lord Jesus Christ as the perfect example and motivator of what Peter has been explaining all along. This is a text that shows us the basis the foundation, the focal point of everything in the Christian's life. What we see here in this passage is, in a nutshell, what makes us sure, what makes us steadfast, what makes us faithful, even as people who are striving to be holy in an unholy world. And so let's look at our text together this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, 
because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is God's holy word. God's holy word is inspired by God himself. It is breathed out by God himself, and therefore it carries the authority of God himself. It is without error, and it is with purpose, that it would be sufficient for the people of God to learn who God is and how to live godly lives in this world. And I say that because we might be tempted to question that in a passage like this. It is a difficult passage. It is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. It is one that many theologians have debated for a long time, and some, even godly theologians, have come to some differing opinions about some details in this passage. And it is very easy to get distracted from the main point of what this text is getting at by the various details and speculations of smaller things. Peter writes here about Jesus preaching to spirits in prison, and then he jumps to Noah and the ark, and then he jumps to baptism, and all of this is in the context of Jesus' suffering and death and resurrection. So what does Peter mean here? What is he getting at? What are we supposed to do with a text like this? Well, I'll give you a hint. It's not to debate the details. There is a place for that. And it is good to talk about and try to figure those things out. But we must not do so at the expense of the main idea. Whenever you come to a difficult text like this, it is important to remember a crucial doctrine concerning Scripture. And that is a, a doctrine that theologians call the perspicuity of Scripture. Are you familiar with that term? You say, no, can you clarify it for me? Yes, I can. The perspicuity of Scripture means the clarity of Scripture. In other words, Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is a revelation of God to men, and it is breathed out in such a way that it is meant to be understandable for every Christian. Now, that doesn't mean that every detail makes perfect sense to us, and certainly there are teachings of Scripture that are that, that very smart people have come to different conclusions on. And there is room for Christian debate and, and, and some flexibility with some issues within Scripture. But when it comes to the essentials of the Christian faith, when it comes to the foundational doctrines of Christianity and of who God is, and when it comes to what every Christian needs to know for life and godliness, for salvation, for instruction in holy living, Scripture is clear, and we are meant to live by what we clearly see. I say that because sometimes we sacrifice the clearest things to debate the things that aren't so clear. And we must beware. And in passages like this one, the doctrine of the perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture 
must guide us as we seek to make sense of difficult details. A general principle then that should guide us in our Bible study, even in difficult and detailed passages like this one, is this, that the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. The plain meaning is usually the precise and intended meaning, and so we shouldn't fall into the trap of letting our finite minds make a text more complicated than it was intended to be. And as has been so famously stated for so long, when the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. We can take these verses as they are simply stated. And that doesn't answer every question we may have, but it does help us get to the point. And so it is with this text. The context of what Peter has written here is the teaching regarding how Christians suffer for their faith. And now, as Peter has already done several times in the context of teaching us how to live in a sinful world steadfastly with great hope, he lifts our eyes to Jesus Christ. He lifts our eyes to heaven, and he holds the Lord Jesus himself up, not just as the object of our faith, but also as the example of godly endurance in the midst of unjust suffering. And as we look at the unusual details of this text and try to understand what Peter is saying here, it will help us to recognize that what he is giving us here is a sequence of events in the experience of Jesus Christ himself. And this sequence of events holds several prominent mountain peaks of truth. It begins by proclaiming Christ's death. And then it highlights Christ's declaration. And then it explains Christ's deliverance. And it culminates finally in the celebrating of Christ's dominance. And the purpose of all of this is to lift our eyes above our present circumstances to the Lord Jesus Christ so that we will see by His example that God has a glorious purpose in the suffering of His people. And that we will see by the death and resurrection that Christ is the victor over sin and death, that He is the supreme ruler over every power in the universe, and that all who put their trust in Him have His favor, have His protection, and have His eternal promise. That is our greatest hope. This is our only hope. And my goal for us this morning is that we would turn our eyes upon Jesus and rejoice in glorious hope in Him. And so we see two things. We see the example that Christ has set that shows us God has a purpose even in the suffering. That's how Peter is... That's why Peter is using him as an example at this particular point in 1 Peter. But then we are also going to see why he is the perfect example and why he is held up as such and why God's purpose was fulfilled in him. And that is because he is the victorious, conquering Savior. So Peter begins this text by proclaiming Christ's death 
in verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That phrase, for Christ, signals that this is an explanation of how we can obey what Peter has just said in the passage leading up to this. Verses 8 through 17. How can we remain steadfast and godly in the midst of suffering? How can we maintain our hope when all the world is against us? By looking to Christ and remembering who He is and what He has done and what He has accomplished. This changes everything. You can't change your circumstances many times. You can't change the trajectory of this world by yourself. And if you look at at the way the world goes, and if you look at your own sinful heart, there is great cause for discouragement and hopelessness. But when you look to Christ, everything is changed. Everything is different. When your hope is in Christ, everything is different. When you consider what Christ has done, everything changes. So, What has he done? Well, Peter says he also suffered once for sins. Some translations say he died, and that is the point. It was his suffering and death. But why did he do it? Why did he suffer? Why did he die? Peter says it was for sins. After all, Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. But now we have a problem, don't we? Jesus, the perfect Savior, died for sin? Was Jesus a sinner? Absolutely not. In fact, Peter has already established that back in chapter 2, verse 22, when he said that he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus never sinned. He is the eternal Son of God who has come to earth in human flesh, truly God and truly man. And as such, he is perfect God. He never sinned. So why did Christ suffer and die for sins? Peter explains it. The righteous for the unrighteous. He didn't suffer and die for his own sins. He suffered and died for someone else's. Whose? Whose sin did he suffer and die for? Mine and yours. The Apostle Paul summarizes it well in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he says, For our sake, for our sake, he made him, that is Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him... We, the ones who did no sin, might become the righteousness of God. The one who knew no sin bore the punishment of God on sin so that those who were guilty of that sin might be declared righteous before God. That brings us to the next phrase in verse 18, which explains the purpose for Christ's death, that he might bring us to God, that he might bring us to God because no one else could. 
This is the glorious grace of the gospel. This is the glorious grace and great celebration of the gospel message. In our natural state, in our sin, we are separated from God. There is a dividing wall of hostility between us and God. We are lost. We are hopeless. We are haters of God. And the wrath of God abides on us forever. That is every single human being who has ever lived except for the Lord Jesus himself because of our sin. But Christ died as a substitute. He took on himself the wrath of God that every one of us deserves for our own sin in our place. He suffered unjustly at the hands of ungodly, sinful men. But in suffering unjustly at the hands of ungodly, sinful men, divine justice was satisfied. Because the wrath of God on sin was satisfied. Because he poured it out on his son. The eternally righteous one suffered in our place so that our punishment could be taken away, so that it could be paid by somebody like him who could bear it instead of us. He suffered in our place so that he might bring us to God and make peace between us and declare us righteous in him so that that dividing wall of hostility could be removed. This is the only way a sinful person can approach a holy God and not be instantly consumed in his wrath. When we are brought to him by the Lord Jesus, when we have faith in the Lord Jesus, when we have confessed our sins and placed our faith solely in the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, who has paid for our sin in our place. And I want you to notice one more thing that Peter says about the suffering and death of Christ here, and it is that it was once. Once. The idea there is once for all. That doesn't mean once for every single person who has ever lived as if salvation is just automatic to everybody. That's not the idea behind once for all. For Scripture teaches that only those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. But when it says once for all, this is revealing the power and the sufficiency of the death of Christ on the cross to save all of his people finally and forever, never to be repeated. When we take the Lord's Supper together, we are not re-sacrificing the Lord Jesus on the cross. That was a one-time thing, and it is done. This is a contrast to the Old Testament sacrifices, which were constant and nonstop. No sooner would the human priest finish one sacrifice that he had to begin making preparation for the next one. Why? Because God's people were still sinful, and the sacrifice was not sufficient to cover all sins for all time, no lamb and no mere man, for that matter, could ever serve as an adequate substitute 
for the infinite weight of man's sin. That is why salvation could only be secured through a divine sacrifice. That is why it had to be God in human flesh, the God-man. That is why Jesus, the Son of God, is called the great high priest. Because as we read in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He had no need like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Therefore, we read in Hebrews 1, verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why did he sit down? Because the sacrifice was finished. Salvation was secured once and for all and forever. Now, what does all of this have to do with the context of suffering for righteousness' sake in 1 Peter? Think about it. There is no greater display of unjust suffering, undeserved suffering for righteousness' sake than the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus Christ is there. And in his suffering and death, Jesus models the character and the hope of a godly man through unjust suffering. But what's more, I want you to think of our own role in his suffering. Our own role in his suffering. It was our sin that put him there. He was paying for our transgressions. His suffering and death was caused by our unrighteousness. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers, it was my sin that held him there. Wasn't it? And this is the testimony of all who profess faith in Christ, whose faith is in Christ, that even when we suffer unjustly for the sake of righteousness, we are simply following in the steps of our Savior, and we have not yet received what we deserve. Because it was my sin that held him there. But there we find stability and hope in the patience and the perseverance and the purpose of the suffering of Christ, knowing that in Him our suffering has an eternal purpose. Because when He suffered in our place for our sins and endured such hostility to the point of death, even death on a cross, He secured for us there a salvation that the world cannot take away. And therefore we can be patient and we can persevere because we don't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We know we deserve much worse than what we've received. But we also have great hope because we know that there is an end to this story. And it is a happy ending for God's people. And all of this is accomplished by our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says, by being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. What does that mean? Here, that is not a reference to the Holy Spirit, 
nor yet to his resurrection. That will come later. It simply means that at his crucifixion, his physical body truly died. You know, there's some debate about that among people who don't believe. And Peter says, no, no, his body was dead. And yet his spirit remained alive, just like everyone else's in death. The implication is that while his physical body was dead and buried, Jesus was not inactive during those three days while he was in the tomb. Oh, now we're getting into some fun stuff, aren't we? He wasn't inactive. He was up to something. Where was his spirit? Well, we're not exactly told, but Scripture does teach that to be absent from the body is to be where? Present with the Lord. And on the cross, Jesus yielded up his spirit to the Father. We see that in Luke 23, 46. And he also told the thief on the cross, what? Today, the thief who believed, today you will be with me in paradise. So I believe that the spirit of Jesus Christ, when his body died, immediately went to be with the Father. But the story doesn't end there. So Peter goes on, and the sequence of events now continues as we get into verses 19 and 20, where we see now Christ's declaration. Peter writes, In which, that is, in his spirit, while his body is still buried, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Here we're getting into the weeds a little bit, but again, Build on what you know. Jesus, in his spirit, after his body died, went somewhere and proclaimed something. Okay? Spirit immediately goes to be with the Father, but it apparently doesn't stay there. We know it's coming back to his body eventually. Where does he go in the meantime? There's, this is where a lot of people get confused, and some tend to read more into this than what is really here. And there are basically... Three interpretations historically of what is going on here. I want to highlight them just so you know where I'm going with this. Okay? When Peter's talking about the spirits and, and the days of Noah and so on, one of the views here is that this is a historical reference, meaning that back in the days of Noah, Jesus was the one preaching to the lost. There's not much support for that idea anywhere, but it is one of the ideas out there. There's not much support for it, and there's not much reason to think that way because Noah was preaching the message that God had sent to him, and that's how it has usually worked. Okay? Another review, another view of this is that this refers to Jesus going into hell and preaching the gospel to those who perished in the flood or even to Old Testament unbelievers, essentially giving them a second chance at repentance. And we can probably already be able to figure out the problem with that one, because it is directly opposed to the clear teaching that, as we read in Hebrews 9.27, that it is appointed for man to die once, and then after this comes judgment. Furthermore, the word translated proclaimed here is not the word that is usually used for preaching the gospel. It is a word that means heralding the news of a king. That's the word that is being used here. 
And so the third interpretation, and the one that I believe is correct, is that after Jesus' body died, his spirit went immediately to be with the Father in heaven. But then right before his resurrection, he descended into the lower parts of the earth to proclaim his victory over sin and over death and over hell to those spirits who were already imprisoned under the, under the judgment of God. The scripture clearly teaches that there are demonic spirits that are roaming the earth. But it also teaches that there are spirits who have already been imprisoned in hell and await God's final judgment. And specifically in this context, these spirits were the ones who were active in the days of Noah, right before God destroyed the earth because of its debauchery. These were the demons who were, who were driving the extreme debauchery of those days when the sin was so great on the earth that God wiped it out. And Peter writes about this. If you'll turn over to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, he writes about this when he says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then if you go over to Jude chapter, or not chapter, Jude verses six and seven, he writes it about it again. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. What is all of that getting at? It's talking about certain evil spirits who were the worst of the worst, who had so transgressed the patience and the boundaries of the Lord that he had set up for them that they, they were pushing the gross and extreme sins of sexual perversion and murder and idolatry that defined the world in Noah's day and that defined Sodom and Gomorrah and that frankly defined the world that we live in today. Those who were driving that in that day, we're told God took decisive action and judgment, confining these demons prematurely, as it were, from our perspective anyway, to hell. Now, these forces of hell, who have spent their entire existence raging against the Holy One, here's the point, warring against His authority, wreaking havoc in the world, now think that they have finally won because Christ was on the cross and his body was dead. And what a shock it must have been when the Lord Jesus Christ himself shows up and crashes the party with a glorious announcement and proclamation that hell has been conquered, that sin and death have been defeated, that salvation has been secured for God's people, and that Christ Almighty is the all-powerful victor. And with that, it's as if Jesus says, now y'all watch this, and he comes and his spirit returns to his body and in, in the tomb, and he is raised from the dead. It's such a powerful declaration of victory for Christ and His people. Sin is defeated. Salvation is secured. 
Christ is risen and hope is eternal. And Peter's point here is to say this, that you may suffer greatly in this life, but your suffering is not the end of the story. And it does not mean that God has not been faithful or that evil has gotten the better part of the day and that it has gotten the best of you. In Christ, we see the example of victory through suffering. And in Christ, we find the sovereign Lord who brings us that victory. And so you see, Christ has borne your sin in his body on the tree if you are in him. He died. He has risen again. And this makes all the difference. In him, you can have eternal hope. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? Not even the forces of hell. They cannot triumph. Dear friends, we are meant to look up today from our trials, real and hard as they might be. We are meant to look up and to set our hope on this all-powerful and victorious Savior. And that is why Peter continues at the end of verse 20 and on into verse 21, highlighting the significance of Noah and the ark and baptism. In these verses now, we see Christ's deliverance. Look at verse 21. God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is almost a side thought for Peter. While he's mentioning the days of Noah, it's almost like he, he says, oh, and by the way, Speaking of Noah, speaking of the flood, let's talk about God's patience. Let's talk about baptism. But it highlights the salvation that God provides to his people, even in the midst of the outpouring of judgment in the world. In verse 20, Peter speaks of the spirits who disobeyed. And then he speaks of Noah and his family who were saved through the ark. You can read all about that in Genesis 6 through 8. But that is a temporal observation. It is an earthly observation that points to a greater truth. And he explains that greater truth in verse 21. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, hear me well. He is not referring to water baptism as a means of gaining salvation. Some have read that into this passage. But that's not what Peter is talking about. And I know that because he clarifies in the very next statement, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is not about water baptism. This is about the spirit baptism that immerses us into Christ and means has to do with being saved by faith alone in Christ alone. In other words, just as Noah was saved from the waters of God's judgment by getting into the ark, so we shall be saved if we are in Christ from the outpouring of God's wrath on that great and final day of judgment that is to come. 
if we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that phrase in verse 21, appeal to God, as an appeal to God, has to do with a pledge or a commitment. That's what the word means. It refers to coming to God through Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. It is not just believing facts. It is submitting ourselves to the Lord and appealing to Him and and subjecting ourselves to Him and to His mercy, crying out for salvation because only He can deliver it. It is a pledge or a commitment to Him. And then the phrase, for a good conscience, has to do with being right with God, being forgiven by God, being reconciled to Him, and being at peace with Him. And all of that is made possible only through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what saving faith really is. It is not just a head full of knowledge. It is not even just affirming that the facts we have might be true. It is an appeal to the Lord. It is a yielding of ourselves. It is a pledge or a commitment to the Lord according to His mercy for salvation. This is salvation, saving faith. It is not just believing in Jesus Christ. It is believing into Jesus Christ. It is yielding our lives to Him. It is confessing our sins. It is recognizing that we are sinners and that He is the only Savior. And it is a a repentance of our sins, which means turning away from our sins and, and yielding ourselves to Him, coming all the way to Christ. And it may very well be that some in here this morning have come partially to Christ. You know who He is. You even believe what the Bible has said. But you have not come to that point of yielding yourself to Him, of repenting of your sin. And you are, as it were, trying to stand in two worlds with two feet. And you can't do that. He is Lord of all. This means acknowledging that He is who He claims to be. It means confessing that we are the sinners He says we are. And then turning away from our sin, yielding our lives to Him, crying out to Him for salvation. And then we are told that all who call upon the name of this Lord Jesus Christ will be saved, not just today, but for all eternity. And that brings us now to verse 22, where we see the the completion of this sequence of events as Peter celebrates Christ's dominance. Christ's dominance. He speaks of the the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ in verse 21. And then he says in verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. What is that talking about? It's talking about his ascension. When he returned to heaven as the victorious Savior, having completed his mission, the one who has indeed sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What is the right hand of God? What is significant about him being seated there? That is the position of highest honor, highest authority, highest supremacy in the universe. This marks 
the beginning of his exaltation. It marks his glorification and it marks the inauguration of his sovereign right to rule the universe. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2 and the Apostle Paul describes it there as well in Philippians chapter 2 in verse 6 when he says, though he was in the form of God, this is Christ, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what we've covered so far. Now, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father every knee should bow not just every human knee but of those things that are in heaven above those things that are on earth and those that are under the earth, every knee bows. These angels and authorities and powers that Peter speaks of refers to all the hosts of heaven, the hosts of hell, and the earth between these, all these forces of the universe that are under the sovereign rule of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they will all serve their purposes for the advancement of the kingdom and the glory of our sovereign Lord Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow. Friends, your knee will bow. And not every knee will bow in saving faith. But every knee will bow in acknowledgement of the sovereign right and authority of King Jesus. That is the message of victory that Jesus proclaimed to those spirits in prison. It is the song of victory that is sung in heaven above. But here is the message for you right here today. How much better to bow that knee now while there is still time to receive his saving grace than to wait until that final day and bow the knee as a rebel against him receiving his banishment and eternal damnation. How much better to bow now and be a citizen of his kingdom. All of this Peter writes in the context of teaching Christians how to suffer well and stay faithful in an ungodly world. It all begins right here. You see, Christian, if you suffer in this world, your first need is not to change your circumstances. If you suffer for righteousness' sake in this world, if you are being mistreated because of your faith, if you are bearing the consequences, the ugly consequences of being a Christian in a hostile world, your first need is not to change your circumstances. Your first need is not even to convince the world around you that you're right. Your first need is not to get a more comfortable life. Your first need is to look up to Christ. Because things in this world may not get easier for you. 
He never promised that they did, that they will. But this we know. There is a purpose in every bit of suffering. How do I know that? Because the Lord God of heaven and earth will not humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, to save you from your sin and then leave you hanging out to dry. And he's not going to bring you to a point of suffering for no purpose. Why? Because he's gone to prepare a place for you. And he is fitting you for a life, eternal life in heaven with him. And everything that you experience in this life is leading you to that point, that next point. He is not going to let you suffer without purpose. So our first need is not to get out of the suffering because we might not in this world. Our need is to look up to the sovereign and victorious Lord Jesus Christ because he is the victor. He has conquered sin. He has conquered death. He has conquered hell. It all begins here with a wholehearted, unswerving confession of the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord of all. This is the truth that saves. This is the assurance that preserves. This is the hope that secures all who put their hope and their trust in Him. Christian, you need the gospel today. The gospel is not just for those who are unbelievers, that's something that once we believe it, we move on from it. No, you need the reality of Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. It not only saves your soul, but it preserves your steadfast hope in this foreign land and this temporary troubled life. Beloved, look up to Christ today. Seek Him today. Set your hearts on Him today. But then the gospel is also for those who do not yet believe. And I think one thing that's abundantly clear from this text and so many others is that there are only two sides. There's God's side and there's Satan's side. There's heaven and there is hell. And my question to you this morning is, which side are you on? And how do you know? Your attendance at church today does not put you on the right side. Your money doesn't put you on the right side. Your good behavior does not put you on the right side. The only way we get to the right side is by being born again by the Spirit of God through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The only way we find the right side is by peace with God, and that only comes through Him, through Christ. Friends, you must be born again. You must be born again. That doesn't mean you must improve your life. That doesn't mean that Jesus is the big missing piece of the puzzle that you've been yearning for so long. And that if you just plug him in, everything else will come together. No, you must lay your life down at his feet. 
you must become poor in spirit. Your goodness not only won't get you to the right side, it is filthiness in God's sight. Your attempts at goodness only make it worse. The money is worthless. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Your knowledge, your attendance at church, it's filthiness in His sight. Unless you are in Christ. You see that? Without Him, we have no hope no matter how great and good our lives are. With Christ, we have unshakable, irreplaceable, unmovable, steadfast hope no matter how hellish things get here. So my plea to you, you must be born again. You must come all the way to Christ. You must hold nothing back. Confess your sins to God. Call out to Him for forgiveness through Jesus Christ alone. There is grace for sinners. That's why Peter is writing all of this. Because this is the message of hope for those who are in Christ. There is grace for sinners. This is what Jesus secured on that cross and in His resurrection. And it is promised to you if you will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I take, O cross, thy shadow for my abiding place. I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of his face. Content to let the world go by, to know no gain or loss. My sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross. There in the ground his body lay. Light of the world, by darkness slain. Then, bursting forth, in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Is he yours? Are you his? Are you standing with joy and great hope being bought with the precious blood of Christ? Let's pray.